scientists announced a shocking discovery in spring 2019. The loss of ice in Antarctica had devastated the second largest emperor penguin colony in the world, and it was unlikely the colony would bounce back from the loss of territory or the loss of population. The story was just one more example of the way the Earth's landscape is changing. Scientists discovered the loss of both the ice and the colony, through the use of satellite survey technology. Using satellite technology to map changes to Earth's terrain is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former and founding chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is geographer Caitlin Conges. Conges is Applied Scientist Lead at Descartes Labs, where she studies changes to Earth's landscape using various types of satellite technologies. Caitlin, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. As I mentioned, you're a geographer and you're using satellite tech to sort of study, I know, changes to, to the environment. Um, how did this become what you do? Yeah, that's a great question. I went into college thinking I would study English literature Mm. and I was at UC Santa Barbara. I took a geography class and just really fell in love with it. Um, They have a dynamite remote sensing program at Santa Barbara and uh, I really fell in love with the technology. This was before Google Maps was really pervasive and I thought the ability to see the world in this way was just so cool. And I went on to get a PhD in geography, focusing on um, machine learning and remote sensing or satellite image analytics. Um, And then I wound my way to Descartes Labs. Well, that's really an an interesting combination of skills that you're describing. And and can you help us unpack a little bit, what exactly do you mean by by, uh, these remote sensing data? And, And what kind of machine learning tools are you using with this data and towards what end? Sure, as far as remote sensing data, um, so remote sensing can really mean a variety of things. It just means that you aren't measuring something by you know, taking a temperature with a thermometer, not remote, uh, but any sort of uh, weather sensor that's out, any sort of um, in-ground sensor is a remote sensor but the remote sensing that we do uses satellites. So they are obviously uh, remote uh, up in space and imaging the earth uh, every day. And so that's that's really my bread and butter, looking at the satellite imagery and using it to better understand earth dynamics. Um, As far as machine learning, we use a variety of of different algorithms there, but essentially what you're doing is uh, automating a process to really learn from the data uh, and feed in different features that can help um, uh, where you're sort of telling it what's important and what to be looking at. And then it will take those features, learn what uh, trees look like, for example, learn what water looks like, and then be able to uh, scale that, to map that across you know, the entire globe. Can, can you expand on that example just a, a bit, just the idea of what... Wh- a particular problem that you've worked on with remote sensing data yeah, and you classified I, using these tools? Yeah, I was going to ask you about the the rice paddy stuff, oh. which I thought was a good example in one of your early studies. So how do you map a rice paddy? Yeah, that was going to be my example. So that's perfect. Right. Um, 
So rice is a really unique crop. It spends part of its growing season uh, completely submerged. So uh, in terms of, of training an algorithm to understand that, I would feed in data uh, related to wetness. So there are, are water indices you can drive from satellite imagery. Um, rice also then gets very, very green. Uh, we've all seen these beautiful photos from China or Vietnam of rice paddy fields. Uh, so feed in a similar index on vegetation. Um, rice tends to grow in low-lying areas, so we can feed in information on elevation. Uh, temperature, it tends to be a, a warm weather crop. Um, and if you feed all of this data that's related to the crop into an algorithm, and then you also feed in example points of, in this case, rice or uh, other types of land cover that are not rice, it will go to each of those rice points and say what elevation they're growing at, what the wetness is, what the greenness is, um, what the temperature is in that region and say, okay, these are the parameters that indicate rice. Uh, and then it can go to every other point and uh, build a you know, sort of decision tool and give a probability of whether that other location is rice or not rice based on what it learned from these specific rice points. I noticed in some of your work, you mentioned the, some of the problems that maybe cloud cover might cause or snow, some of the problems that you face in satellite imaging like this? Yeah, clouds are definitely uh, a big problem with satellite <laughs> imagery. So you can imagine uh, these sensors where it's circling the earth and it's basically just up there with a camera taking a picture. And so if clouds are in the way, you aren't getting uh, any look at that landscape. And so with the work I've done with rice, that's a huge problem because rice is grown in tropical areas. So during monsoon season, you might have six months where it's mm -hmm. just cloud cover every single day. Um, there's, it's such a boom of data right now and there's all different sorts of sensors going up, commercial, government. Um, one sensor I'm really excited by is the European uh, or yeah, European Space Agency Sentinel-1 satellite. And so this is a synthetic aperture radar. So instead of just passively circling the Earth and taking a picture, it's actually emitting energy. Um, so it's actively sending energy to the surface of the Earth and measuring how much comes back. And the long wave microwave radiation it's sending out can penetrate clouds. Wow. So you can get data day or night. You can get it in all sorts of different weather. Um, it's a little noisy. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't come back where grass is green and water is blue, that sort of thing. It's, uh, you have to sort of tease signals out of it, but you aren't getting like six months of data loss during a, a monsoon season. Very good. So how do you evaluate whether your models are any good? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we, uh, in an ideal circumstance, we either work with a data vendor who has ground truth data. So, you know, somebody who has maybe labeled it, the actually the United States is a great example. We have amazing ground truth in the United States. We have uh, the USDA collecting data on what different fields are each year, just going out and doing massive surveys. Um, and so we would take that data and we might set aside, say, 70% of it to train a model in the way that I described, um, where you're saying this is what corn looks like, this is what soybeans look like. And then we hold out 30% of the data um, to validate what we've done. So we'll, we'll take a model, take this other 30% of data and compare our model to what that truth is 
to evaluate how well we did. I was just going to say, so you're mapping these rice fields. Why should anyone who is not at Descartes Labs care that you're doing this? Rice is such a hugely important crop globally. Uh, 20% of the calorie supply globally is from rice. Uh, Rice is directly consumed by people, unlike corn or soy, which might be turned into derivative products. Um, and rice is also really susceptible to climate change. So mm-hmm. I mentioned it's grown in, mm-hmm. in really low elevations. Those also tend to be um, river deltas where it's, there's salinity intrusion from rising seas. There's total inundation from rising sea levels. They're, they also tend to grow rice paddies at, uh, right at the maximum temperature threshold. So any increase in temperature is going to decrease the area and yields of these crops. And so I think it's it's massively important if you're thinking about um, food security globally, um, how to distribute resources, where can it grow in the future. So rice specifically, I think, is a is a pretty critical crop for people around the globe. I, I have a question. Did you like I, I learned from reading your research that these crop these rice crops in Vietnam anyway, there's three times a year you can you can get a rice crop, which is very different than what. I'm used to thinking about in terms of agriculture here. Did you know that going into the study, or is this something you track in your satellite data? Yeah, it's it's something we track in satellite data, so you can look at how many times a year it's planted, and that was actually the foundation of my PhD research. Mm-hmm. Um, Vietnam, as we all know, used to be a pretty closed economy. Um, in the late 1980s, they instituted reforms to open the economy, And at that point, these new technologies could come in, uh, and Vietnam went from being a net importer of rice to a net exporter Mm -hmm. because they got these shorter duration uh, varietals of rice. Uh They got uh, mechanized technology to grow rice in in the Mekong and Red River Deltas primarily. Um, And so what I was trying to track was how these economic reforms uh, impacted the landscape. So rice went from primarily being grown once or twice a year to two or three times a year. And using satellite imagery, you can track that through time and, uh, and assess how things are changing on the ground. You, you mentioned that one of the concerns associated with uh, perhaps uh, the, the levels of sea changing might be increased salinity of some of these, mm-hmm. these the, the water sources. I, do the remote sensing tools have sufficient uh, sensitivity to detect kind of a subtle change? Um, yeah, I think it depends on the change. So certainly rising sea levels, you can look, it's a, it's a very slow process, right? So it's not going to be overnight that you see a change, but looking at decades of data, you can see uh, how coastlines have changed and how seas have, have risen. Um, looking, thinking about, I wish it was as simple of an answer as, if sea level rises one meter, X amount will be underwater because it's below uh, this this one meter level. But it tends to be pretty complicated because it's uh, you know these these river deltas where it's not just the rising seas, but there are um, construction in place to block sea level rise. There's dikes and levees. There's also sea level or salinity intrusion. Um, so you can see it in satellite imagery. It's just you might need. Uh, a pretty large time series of data in order to to really assess the impacts. 
You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Descartes Labs' Caitlin Conges about her work studying Earth's changing terrain, uh, particularly using uh, remote sensing and satellite technology. We've been talking about your work, Caitlin, uh, looking at um, these rice fields, but I was wondering if you um, had something else sort of on the pipeline or something you were really excited that you're working on where you're sort of applying this technology to a new space for you. Yeah, definitely. We have a lot of different projects happening at Descartes Labs, but one of the ones that I'm most excited about is um, uh, a person on my team, Clyde Wheeler, has really been pushing forward looking at wildfire detections. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is a uh, a satellite up in space that is uh, called GO-16, and it is a geostationary satellite. So instead of circling the Earth, it just stays in one place. And it is taking uh, imagery of the United States every five minutes. And so it's really the closest thing to real-time streaming that we have. It's fairly coarse resolution, but uh, we are developing an algorithm to... uh, It it has lots of near-infrared bands, so we can look at heat signatures. So we're trying to see if we can detect wildfires earlier than they're reported and then be able to get that information to first responders uh, and people who are in a position to, to help out during those situations. That, that's really cool. So when, when you say coarse resolution, what, what does that mean in terms of the, the, the area? So goes, uh, so the, the radar imagery that I mentioned before for mapping rice paddies, that's at about 20, kilom- oh, sorry, 20 meter resolution. Um, GOES data is at a two kilometer resolution. Uh, so it's quite a bit uh, different scale that we're looking at. That being said, we can detect fires that are smaller than two kilometers um, we, because a sub-pixel change uh, will often result in a change for the whole pixel. So the campfire that affected California last year, um, we've tr- been developing this algorithm and we were actually able to detect that when the fire was at about 10 acres. Hmm. Um, that still, it was, it was reported by the time it reached 10 acres, it had been reported to first responders. Um, but we're based here in New Mexico where there's, uh, a much more sparsely populated state. Um, so we have fewer people looking at the horizon, fewer people looking out for fires to report them. And we have been able to identify fires before they've, uh, actually been reported. I was going to ask you, are, are you working with people where you provide this data that helps some sort of intervention. So you're doing this work on the paddy fields, the rice paddies. You're doing this work now with these wildfires, um, gathering this data. But then are you turning it over to people who then use this data to create interventions of some kind? Yeah, that's absolutely the goal. Um, it really depends on the project. So wildfires, uh, you know, that's such a sensitive issue. We don't want to detect fires Um, if they're not actually there and Uh cause a panic. So we're trying to refine that algorithm as much as possible before we sort of release it out into the wild. Um, But with other projects, we are really connecting with people um, who can do something about this. So we work with various NGOs for the rice paddy work specifically. I have contacts in Vietnam at different universities and government agencies that I worked with throughout my PhD and remain in contact with. I'll actually be there in June for a couple of weeks. Um, so that really is a goal of ours to not just develop this in a bubble and and use it internally, but actually be able to connect with folks who can help implement 
changes, whether in policy or response, um, but really put our, our work to good use. So I'm curious, what's the most surprising insight that you've gleaned as a result of analyses that, that you've worked on? Something that was a real aha, or I, I didn't expect that. It's a hard question to answer because usually going into a project, we do quite a bit of literature review and reading. So uh, we don't want to be totally surprised by a data analysis. <laughs> um, I think one cool project that we've been looking at is uh, deforestation. So again, using this uh, synthetic aperture radar data that can um, penetrate clouds. Um, so in tropical regions where deforestation can be pretty rampant, um, using that data to, to better understand where deforestation is occurring, how often, uh, and we've detected it in places where there are bans on deforestation mm. um, and we're still, we're still seeing it occur. So that's been pretty fascinating. Uh, and I think that's really the the beauty of satellite imagery is that you can be this uh, almost environmental watchdog because you have eyes on the ground, whether folks want you to or not. So you can really see what is happening and how things are changing. I'd like to switch gears here and talk more about your career. And uh, you're in a field that I suspect is dominated by men. Uh, what have the challenges been for you as a woman geographer? And uh, I don't think you're teaching now, right? Or maybe you're mentoring, but uh, do you feel any sort of obligation to, to help younger women get into science? That's a great question, and I really appreciate you asking it. Um, the first thing I want to say is I geography is such a broad field. It can really range from, you know, almost sociological research to really technical. And so I think there are... Uh, gray areas in there, but for what I'm doing in this more technical field, it is certainly dominated by men. I am not teaching, I am mentoring, um, and it's something, well, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm a team lead, so in that way, there's some level of mentoring, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm really enjoying that. Uh, I work with a local organization called Girls, Inc., um, and so that's one way I've uh, approached this. So Girls, Inc. is a national organization, but there's a local chapter here in Santa Fe that's really impressive and really serving the community. Um, Descartes, I worked with our internal team and we got uh, laptops donated to um, Girls Inc. and then worked with them on coding projects at a junior high school level. Mm. Um, and we will be going back this summer with a few of the women um, here at Descartes to do more programming work during their summer programs. And internally, I think it's just trying to advocate for people and really promote uh, the good work that women are doing. And um, I think being in a male-dominated field, it can often seem intimidating to speak up. And I really try to be that voice for women on my team if they're feeling intimidated uh, in this space. Very good. So how do students prepare for a career such as yours? Um, yeah, good question. I think taking, you know, just finding what you're passionate about, I think is, is, was my main takeaway. I really didn't think this is what I was going to wind up doing and just going into college with a uh, really open mind and letting you, letting yourself find what you're really good at and what you really love to do. Um, and I think for this specific field, I think getting competency in some sort of coding language is really useful. Um, really just trying to take a variety of different classes. So I'm 
I'm mainly technical, but uh, I mentioned my PhD was also looking at economic reforms in Vietnam. There's a, you know, really being well-rounded in the coursework that you're taking is for geography, I think, pretty critical. Caitlin, so I in Bur- when I worked in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, I got the chance to talk with Sarah Parkak, who is an archaeologist who uses remote sensing um, in her work, uh, and is actually she partnered with the Public School of Health, the School of Public Health, um, to do some remote sensing for them. So I know there's a lot of different applications for the technology that you are working with. Are there other areas that you think are underexplored when it comes to using this technology? Yes, definitely. Um, You know, we do a lot of land cover and land use change sort of work, and that's what I did during my PhD. Um, But that field, even that field, which has been pretty well explored, is becoming more and more interesting with new data sets coming online. One source of data I'm really excited about is uh, called LIDAR. And so it's similar to radar in that it's actively getting collected, but it's uh, looking at canopy density. And so you can then get 3D structure of uh, of forests, of crops, things like that. Uh, To date, there has never been a space-borne LIDAR. It's all been aerial and flown on planes. It can be expensive to collect. It's Mm. you're not getting the whole earth. And then recently, Um, A sensor just uh, went aboard the International Space Station. So uh, it's currently collecting data and it will will be made available. But I think looking at this more 3D aspect of uh, of the Earth will be really game changing as opposed to just these the the 2D images that we've been getting. Can you describe a, a situation where where geospatial information and data and associated analysis have have really impacted policy in some dramatic way? Sure. Um, I'm there. There are a few good examples. I think a great one is um, deforestation. So the rainforest in the Amazon was uh, getting clear cut for um, agriculture for many years. I think then being able to look at it and monitor that from space was uh, a really great way to affect policy to have that slow down. I mean, if we think about very specific events, uh, so hurricanes um, during Katrina, uh, after any big event, you're flying imagery and you can really get a sense of the scale of an event in a way that I really don't think you can if you're just boots on the ground. And so I, I can't think of a like a specific bill or anything like that, but it certainly affected different policy. I think it's particularly related to environmental protection um, and being, yeah, this this environmental watchdog that I sort of mentioned earlier. You know, one thing I was curious about is just all the geospatial tools that we encounter in our daily life. You know, I, I was thinking about looking at my my maps or looking at, you know, that we see so easily or looking at the, the, the weather pattern maps that we encounter. Are, are there... Any surprising apps that are using geospatial information that, that we may not be aware of? I think every app is using geospatial <laughs> information to a degree. Um, unless you opt out of location services, uh, it is tracking your, your movement, which is inherently geospatial. Uh, I, can, I mean, other than, yeah, like you wouldn't necessarily think your, uh, um, your bank app is tracking where you are, but it, but it certainly is. And so, um, I, I think it's, it's, 
all of them. So I got to ask you, do you turn off your geospatial location on your phone? Um, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I, I'm just not concerned about the, I, I don't think anybody really cares where I'm walking around Santa Fe or grabbing a beer or going grocery shopping. And, and if they do, I don't think there's really anything menacing in, in what I'm doing, but I totally understand the privacy concerns, of course, and why people would want to opt out of it. But I, I don't personally. Well, Caitlin, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.